0: Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, BEPS 2.0 update. Now that the OECD has held consultations on both pillars of its digital economy project, we figured it would be a good time to check in again and see where things stand. Here to update us on the latest from the OECD are Tax Notes reporters Stephanie Johnston and Ryan Finley. Stephanie, Ryan, welcome back.
1: Thank you.
2: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: right, so a lot has happened since the last time we had both of you on the podcast. Could you give us a brief refresher on what the OECD is working on and what's the big deal here?
2: So one thing I've learned this year about tax nerds who have been following the OECD's work in this space, they love the Beatles and Beatles references, so this one's for them. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the tax world. You tell me that it's evolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the tax world. At the G20's request, the OECD is working on leading more than 130 countries toward a common approach to adapt the international tax rules for the 21st century so that companies without physical presence in a given jurisdiction pays corporation tax. And some countries want this solution to be revolutionary so that it results in the reallocation of taxing rights to market jurisdictions. Other countries really want companies to pay a minimum level of tax in their countries, and others still don't really seem that keen on changing things up too much. But some kind of change is on the horizon, whether it's revolutionary or evolutionary is yet to be determined. This year, there's been a lot happening. The space and it's all culminated into what is now on the table at the OECD. And it's a two-pillar proposal. Pillar one, in broad terms, is about the revision of nexus and profit allocation rules to give more taxing rights to market jurisdictions, where pillar two is about minimum taxation, ensuring that corporations pay at least some tax in the jurisdictions which they operate. Uh, And the OECD has had several consultations on these two pillars, and as Ryan will discuss, there are still plenty of outstanding questions to be answered by the end of 2020, which is when the OECD is aiming to have have consensus on a solution.
0: All right, so Ryan, in the last few months, we've had consultations. One was on Pillar 1, the other on Pillar 2 in December. What did we learn from those consultations?
1: Well, for Pillar 1, the consultation focused on kind of the specifics in the unified approach that the OACD Secretariat released in October. It's based on a variant of the residual profit split that uses kind of fixed percentages instead of a, a case-by-case transfer pricing analysis. Specifically, they term the amounts... Amounts A, B, and C. Amount A is really where the residual profit split part comes in. Again, the main difference between a a traditional profit split is that you don't apply another method, usually the transactional net margin method, to figure out what a routine return is. You just stipulate it by rule. So the next step in the unified approach for this amount A is to allocate some chunk of that residual profit to all market jurisdictions. That also would be based on just some fixed percentage rather than kind of a case-by-case analysis. And then the last step for amount A would be to have some allocation formula agreed by everybody, probably based on sales, that allocates the bits of that part of the residual profit to each country. Then the amount B is kind of similar to the way things work now. You determine some sort of routine return for any distribution activities that a subsidiary or branch performs, but it would also use kind of like stipulated percentages instead of case-by-case transfer pricing analysis. And then amount C, which... To some extent, it is the most likely cause of disputes, or at least that's what they say in the unified approach consultation document, would be any kind of additional functions that a subsidiary or branch performs beyond what's reflected in that routine return, an amount B, and it would be a compensation for those additional activities. So basically, in the second consultation, they had all these kind of concepts out there to talk about. The recurring themes in terms of what people said were a couple things. One of them really focused on dispute resolution resolution mechanisms, particularly mandatory binding arbitration. Taxpayers and business group representatives are very concerned that countries will apply this differently and lead to double taxation as a result. Another issue basically had to do with what these percentages will be, none of which are specified in the consultation document. Practitioners generally said at the consultation meeting that whatever the rules are chosen, they should basically approximate what you would have gotten under the traditional arm's length principle-based transfer pricing system. So those are the big things with pillar 1. Pillar 2 is a little more narrow and specific. The second consultation picking up on the the consultation document on pillar 2 was really focused on this issue of blending. Basically the part of the pillar 2 proposal that the consultation document's focusing on has to do with this income inclusion rule where basically some subsidiaries income is subject to a level of effective tax that's below some minimum threshold. The idea is you'd have an income inclusion rule most likely in the parent company's jurisdiction to top them up to that minimum Rate. Now, companies, for the sake of administrative simplicity and perhaps other reasons as well, would like to be able to blend the financial results of all their subsidiaries all over the world and come up with one percentage and then test that percentage relative to the minimum tax floor.
0: So, this would be as opposed to applying this minimum rate for each jurisdiction
1: where they operate or for each entity yes, in those jurisdictions? Yes, both right, are yeah. possibilities. And as you might expect, representatives from business groups were very opposed to that. There are a lot of practical issues, apparently not all entities in all countries have any obligation to prepare separate accounts. So it would be this whole exercise of creating separate accounts if you were to do it on an entity by entity basis. But then on the other hand, representatives from uh, NGOs said blending wouldn't work because it would not stop a company from still parking a significant amount of money in artificially in a low tax jurisdiction. Just as long as their average rate is above the threshold, there's nothing you can do about that. The other thing had to do with basically the the numbers that you take for these calculations. The consultation document talked a lot about how basically the, the preferred approach for now is to take figures for financial accounting purposes, whether under US GAAP or another country's GAAP or IFRS. But then you would have to make adjustments to reflect any timing differences, things with a depreciation, things to do with revenue recognition, losses. You would need various adjustments to kind of make sure everything's on the same page. So the number and the complexity of the adjustments was also a concern for taxpayers.
2: Another interesting thing that came up during the Pillar 1 consultation was this idea of what are we calling all of this? We call it BEPS 2.0, and we've sort of established that that's sort a of good shorthand for this work. It, um, it fits in headlines. It does. <laughs> yes, it, it's very convenient. But Will Morris of Business at the OECD, he was saying during the public consultation that really this work should not be called BEPS 2.0 because we're talking about a new taxing right in Pillar 1. And it's not really picking up on what the BEPS project actually was out to accomplish, which is really what's happening in Pillar 2. So there's sort of an ongoing debate between various factions. I mean, NGOs love BEPS 2.0 as well. We reporters like it because it's convenient. But there's an ongoing discussion about what to call this. And on the sidelines of the consultation, I heard people saying, you know, we should just call it the new tax world order or a new tax deal, or I don't really know what to call it. All I know is that it's keeping us super busy and there's plenty more to come in 2020.
0: Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. Are you looking to continue your tax law education or know someone who is? Our sponsors have been ranked as the number eight school for tax law by US News and World Report. The Graduate Tax Program is a one-year, full-time, 24-credit course in the study of taxation and practical tax skills. The program offers students a unique academic experience combining in-depth doctrinal work and practical perspective. The program boasts a small student-to-faculty ratio that ensures students get the attention they need to succeed in their studies and their careers. The Graduate Tax Program recently announced a new partnership with Altrex Inc a computer software company based in Irvine, in the first-of-its-kind collaboration that will train future tax lawyers on applications of big data analytics in their practice. For domestic students and U.S. permanent residents, the deadline to apply is April 1, 2020. Non-U.S. students must apply by February first. Applications received by January 15, 2020 will receive favorable consideration for the Graduate Tax Program Merit Scholarship. Apply today. Visit law.uci.edu slash grad tax. That's law dot uci dot edu slash grad tax Now, while these negotiations and consultations are continuing on both pillars, have countries continued to support that work or are they moving ahead with their own measures like the digital services tax?
2: So countries have publicly said that they are still supportive of the OECD's work and they'll continue to be engaged in negotiations, but yet we still see countries still moving forward with their digital services taxes, digital advertising taxes, and they don't seem to be waiting around too much longer for the OECD's solution. And I guess, I could see why that is, because we don't really know what the timeline is going to be, even if the OECD does manage to get everyone to agree on something by the end of the year, 2020, then there's still going to be a period of implementation. And in the meantime, these governments are still under pressure to do something to tax multinationals. So... So yes, so countries are still going ahead with their digital services taxes, and this has led to some friction between countries and the U.S., in particular the U.S. and France. You might recall that the U.S. trade representative in July opened an investigation into France's digital services tax, which is a 3% revenue-based tax that applies to turnover from online advertising, the sale of data for advertising purposes, and fees derived from linking users to online sales platforms. The tax applies to large companies that have digital activities in France and took effect January, and this tax has really ruffled the U.S.'s feathers in many ways. So they started this investigation in July, and they recently published their findings earlier this month, and they did find nobody surprised that this tax was discriminatory against U.S. companies. Now the U.S. wants to impose tariffs of up to 100% on French goods, including champagne, leather goods, cheeses. I mean, literally everything that I love. (laughs) So that was an interesting development that happened in this space. So what is going to happen now is that the USTR is going to have a public hearing on January 7th in 2020 to discuss these tariffs further. And they're also indicating that they might open similar investigations into the digital services taxes and digital advertising taxes of Austria, Italy, and Turkey. So you'd think that this investigation would have scared them a little, those countries. But, you know, the Austria, Italy, and Turkey have all said, you know, we're still going ahead with these plans. We're not scared. (laughs) So we'll see what happens. It seems that this OECD work was meant to curb the proliferation of these measures. But in the absence of any real solution on the horizon, countries, I think, are still going to keep going on with these
0: now, on December 3rd, we saw this letter come out from Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. It was to the OECD Secretary General and expressed reservations about the Pillar 1 work. What was this letter about, and how was it
1: received? Well, the letter, after stating a bunch of courtesies about how the U.S. is committed to the process of coming up with a solution. Basically, it said two things that were noteworthy, to say the least. The first was that the U.S. supports a Pillar 2-like solution, but it uses the term guilty-like Pillar 2 solution. Whether Pillar 2 is specifically modeled on the U.S. guilty regime is definitely something that's controversial. But with the Pillar 1 proposal, he said that the U.S. has substantial concerns that Pillar 1 departs from the established. Established nexus and transfer pricing principles, but that the U.S. believes that the goals of Pillar One could be achieved using sort of an elective safe harbor regime. This sort of came in at the 11th hour and took a lot of people by surprise. In the letter responding from the OECD Secretary General, he specifically mentioned that in the months and months that we've been having these negotiations, nobody's once brought this up. This has never been proposed. And there is some confusion as to how exactly safe harbors would kind of perform the goal that. people at least think that Pillar 1 was supposed to achieve. What does Secretary Mnuchin mean by safe harbors in
0: this context?
1: So safe harbors in the transfer pricing context usually refer to some sort of fixed margin or return that whether it's a markup on cost or a margin on operating profit, that if you set your transfer pricing arrangements in compliance with that, then that tax administration agrees not to bother you. They're completely elective and taxpayers under a safe harbor approach would always have the option. To do what they would have done anyway, and to support that, basically under the same kind of transfer pricing analysis that that we've already had. It's a little bit unclear how safe harbors would really work politically as well as technically, because you know to the extent that they're trying to reallocate taxing right, safe harbors don't necessarily achieve that. To the extent that it's up to taxpayers whether to opt in or not. The other thing is whether this would actually, just in monetary amounts, transfer enough revenue to market countries to appease them and get them to agree to pull back their DSTs and other controversial unilateral measures is not clear. So we're still waiting to see how this proposal kind of flies with the rest of the OECD. Well,
0: what did this letter exchange mean for the current OECD negotiations?
2: Well, like Ryan said, it sort of remains to be seen. We haven't really heard much else from the U.S. in the wake of the letter. A lot of observers had said that you know this is going to blow up the negotiations because if The US isn't going to support Pillar One, that would mean a collapse in negotiations, which I can't really say either way because I don't have all the information at hand at the moment. But it does it's safe to say that it represents a wrinkle in the negotiations. So we'll have to wait and see how everything plays out. But going back to Ryan's point about how this might all affect countries, so the OECD is still continuing work on impact assessments. And you know, just the impact assessments are meant to give countries an idea of how are these options under Pillar One and Pillar Two going to affect them? worth it for them to sign on? So I understand from David Bradbury, who heads up this work at the OECD, that the OECD plans on releasing some of the results of the impact assessments in early 2020 and a lot more by mid-2020. So that should shed some more light on who the winners and losers might be. Notwithstanding any possible changes to the proposals, we don't know yet whether they'll be rejiggering some of the stuff already on the table, but we understand that there's likely to be another consultation in March 2020.
0: All right, so we're closing out the OECD's work of 2019 and we're heading into 2020 when all of this is expected to be delivered. What can we expect in 2020?
2: Well, so the OECD's tax chief, Pascal saint amand had said that they were aiming for getting political agreement on the solution by June 2020. So that is the timeline that stands now. I haven't heard anything to the contrary yet. I would imagine that uh, we'll see a lot more action in the digital taxation space as far as unilateral measures because, you know, as you might recall, Canada's Liberal Party had proposed a digital services tax in their platform, and now that they've been reelected, it seems that they're going ahead with their plans So we'll probably see some more proliferation of unilateral measures. And we'll probably have a public consultation, another one in March, where we'll see more impact assessment results by mid-2020. All I know is that we're going to be super busy, and I cannot wait to cover it all.
0: And we will have you back to talk about it as we learn more. Ryan, Stephanie, thank you for being here. Thank you.
2: Thank you. And now,
0: coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the Tax Notes magazines. I'm joined by Executive Editor for Commentary Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave.
3: In Tax Notes Federal, Jesus Mejangos Castro explains how examining foreign income on a transaction-by-transaction basis can help companies make the most out of their FITI deductions. Eugene Segoe and Edward Schnee argued that the rules when accounting for NOL carry forwards are not always neutral, but may result in neutrality. In Tax Notes State, David Cassidy discusses Louisiana's recent steps to make its tax laws more intelligible. Leah Robinson and Samuel Fowler provide an updated appendix summarizing advisory opinions addressing state taxation of online services. And in Tax Notes International... Vedushi Gupta evaluates the OECD's unified approach to determine whether consensus is a realistic goal, while Heke Walrus and Sampo Viding discuss the Finnish Tax Administration's new procedures to facilitate more predictable outcomes for taxpayers. And finally, in the Tax Notes Opinions page, Roxanne Bland looks at California's income tax regulation on space launches, while Joe Thorndike,
0: writes that the wealth tax should continue to be a discussion topic. You can read all that and a lot more in the December 23rd editions of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at tax Stew. that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or a review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analysts, Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.